0: Revolutionary Talk for Revolutionary Times. Promoting peace, liberty, and prosperity around the clock. LibertyTalk.fm.
1: Welcome to Medicine on Call. This is Dr. Elena George, and it's all about living the solutions Our show is dedicated to being a voice for the practicing independent physician and a resource for patients. Our healthcare system is going in the wrong direction. I don't think anybody can say that they're happy with the way way things are going. And I'm really blessed because I have a lot of guests on that get it. And this is a guest today who I respect greatly. And I call her a friend. We're in the trenches together. We are advocating in Capitol Hill we're getting the word out to patients and i wanted to have my friend and colleague dr vicky wool come on today she is in private practice and she is the owner of eagle creek family medicine in idaho she opened it in 2006 and she has a practice that very, very close to my heart because it's not just about practicing medicine. I think it's a spiritual and, and an integrative approach to medicine as well, which I think patients are really clamoring for. We are both members of the uh, Physicians' Council on Healthcare Policy, where she's the co-vice chair of family medicine. And today, I wanted to have her come and talk about her unique perspective on the world of socialism. Um, Dr. Will uh, received her method, is a doctorate degree, a medical doctorate degree from the Central University of Venezuela in 1996. And we've been hearing a lot of parallels um, spoken about the movement towards Venezuela and what it would be like if we started going down the path of single payer. And I wanted to stop living or using emotion, but real facts and someone with a real-world experience to come and tell us her perspective. So, Dr. Wall, Vicki, thank you so much for coming on today. It's really, I really feel an honor to have you spend time with us.
0: Well, Alina, I can't thank you enough, and I highly esteem you as well for all of the advocacy that you are behind and move forward. So, thank you.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. Let's talk a little bit about your practice because it's, it's to me the future, and it's a bit unique. It's not just. Giving out medication, you go deeper and you're, you actually try to to really touch the the essence and the spirit of of your patients. Is that a good way to put it?
0: I yes, it's a perfect way to put it. Uh, I really believe in treating the whole individual. You know, we have in medicine have been so wonderful to do. Um, medical care in terms of the physical ailments and addressing those physical needs that everybody knows about, you know, whether it's lifestyle, uh, nutrition, um, exercise, sleep, uh, you know, creativity, those kind of things. But then there's also healing in the physical and the mental realms, As we know, there's counseling, there's traumas that people have been through that can impact their life um, to this present day, and that can span the ages of decades, and um, so there's there's healing along those lines, but then there's also spiritual healing, and I'm a real advocate and seen firsthand numerous times over and over and over again that um, if you address some of these spiritual issues, uh, unforgiveness, bitterness, um, other, uh, other areas, you know, people get better, and they heal faster and they heal more completely so it's just like it says you know if the sun sets you free you are truly free indeed.
1: I like that and I've seen that as well and you know one of the things I I can think you can speak to this as well because your practice is is very uh, specialized in this sense it's about time isn't it? I can't imagine being able to get that degree of information from a patient when you only have seven minutes to spend with them. Uh, Alina, I had
0: to quit that system. I'm really not in it for the money. Um, I had to change. I was so tired of walking in every single exam room saying, I'm sorry, I'm late. I'm sorry, I'm Mm -hmm. sorry. I mean, people are not widgets. We're complex, beautiful, created beings that, you know, have a history and a life and a purpose and are in you know, are in whatever situation, you know this, but in their, whatever situations they're in, mm-hmm. and it just takes more time. So I actually have half an hour appointments, um, and I give that to, I have a physician assistant, and I give that to her too, um, and we can actually take that time to uh, address deeper needs, you know, of course, if the patient's willing
1: That's you know that's the same uh, for me. My appointments go half an hour, forty-five minutes for a new patient, and then anywhere from twenty minutes to thirty minutes for an established. And it's a different mindset when you walk into that room and you have the time to look a patient in the face, to greet them, not type on a computer screen, and have them. You can you can actually see them relax into the visit, like they're not going to be rushed, and they just start to open up and just tell you everything. And it's just—it's very gratifying, I find.
0: Absolutely. Not only is it uh, gratifying, it's freeing for the patient. And um, like you say, you can get at much deeper levels, and there's a trust relationship that's built up. That patient position trust, You know, relationship is so incredibly important. I don't, you know, you just can't get, people are deceived. People are deceived that they need this antibiotic or they Mm -hmm. need this pill. They need another pill. They need another pill. And
1: that's not where the true
0: healing is.
1: No, I don't think it is. It's actually energy that you transfer between you and the patient, positive energy. Sometimes it's negative, frankly. But, you know, the really neat part is when it's positive by the end of the visit. They come in rigid. They come in with a a wall up, like it's going to be the same type of thing. And they're just, you know, kind of angry sometimes. And just to let them put their guard down, let them empathize, do what we do. You know, this is what we trained to do. This is what we we were put on this earth to do. And you can just see the, the, the healing happen. It may not be... You know, the mind is the first thing, in my opinion. Once you have the person believing that it's a positive, that they can make a difference, that so they don't have to live in a pain or in a in a rut that they're in, I think that's so medicinal, don't you? Hope. I hope yeah. is
0: the answer to all of our sufferings, I think. Got to have hope in a better day, hope in a bigger power, hope in, you know, the future, Hope and goodness
1: I agree. It's kind of hard in these days when everything's so negative, and so it's um, almost that they want you to feel overwhelmed, like what can one person do to make a difference? I reject that I, I do it, and you do it every day If people are walking mm-hmm. in and they walk out and they're they're healed, and this doesn't mean like the, the disease is gone necessarily, but it means that they're healed in the sense that they're empowered. And they have a plan, and they have a choice, and they have they have something that they can do to take power back. That to me is one of the most important things. We are saying the same thing that's <laughs> funny, right? I mean it's I just wish the rest of our colleagues would get to that point and stop being sapped. You can almost see over the past when you opened your practice. What I mean, you you decided, and I did too, to walk away from a a conveyor belt mentality. But what's have you kept up with your colleagues that are still in the in the trenches? Do they look at you and say, "How do you do it?" Or what's your experience with that?
0: Well, it's interesting that uh, quite a number of the physicians that have been bought up by the hospital are actually. leaving and opening up their own hmm. practice because after 10 years, 12 years, they've seen that, you know, I didn't wither up and die. <laughs> I didn't go broke. <laughs> and actually, I'm pretty happy. And I've got time to do important, other important things like advocacy for the patient and changing health reform and those kind of things. Mm-hmm. So I'm, yeah, um... And I can't say that for everybody. I mean, I do know that there are physicians that are ha- happy and that need to work for, say, a big hospital system. Um, it's just not the answer for all of us, that's all. And um, I'm definitely not one of those that uh, thrives or I can't even survive in this cattle prod mentality of get them in and get them out and, Mm-mm. you know, throw pills at them. I just can't do it.
1: I can't either. It's not satisfying. It's soul-sapping. I mean, I, I used to go home when I worked for a huge group and I went out, left residency. I joined a 40-person single-specialty ENT group. I was not a happy person, and I was not myself. My friends thought I'd change. My personality had changed. I came home angry every day, and when my contract ended and I said, I can't do this, and I'm going to do me, and I was able to craft a practice the way I wanted to. It's still not easy because the pressure is out there. If you take insurance to stay open based on what they, when they decide to reimburse you, what they reimburse you is not compatible with staying open. You really have to think outside the box and be creative. If you decide, you no, know, I think you have to have a, a mission and a purpose. God is always ahead of my life, and I'm sure it is. he is for you as well. But the Hippocratic Oath is number two. And if you can't be an advocate for your patient, why on earth would you want to be a physician in my opinion but i don't I don't think that we're the minority in thinking that anymore, are we? I think people are the pendulum may be swinging back. I think there is hope
0: that the pendulum's swinging back. I think the truth is starting to come out because when we got slammed with um the you know, the onslaught of all the regulations that we had to do and we had to use the electronic medical records mm-hmm. and we had to do this documentation and we had to tick off all these boxes and we were finding that we were spending two and a half hours on the computer every single day just to enter the data and not only were we having to put in the physical exam but we were having to code it we were mm-hmm. having to put it in our own labs and even, you know, even put a, a sign of a, a fee to it you know, I... I agree. I was angry. I was angry at the end of the day, and it was like, I didn't train for this, and this is a complete waste of my time, energy, and my training, um, but so the onslaught of all the regulations that came down, the way that the insurance companies just, you know what they do is they obstruct. They're not there to really... Pay your medical bill. They're there to save money and have their shareholders happy. And that's what they've gotten away with. And these huge mega conglomerate of insurance companies, you know, are are pretty adept at, you know, making the doctors and the nursing staff jump over hoops and hurdles to get prior authorization Mm -hmm. and, you know, deny medication. You're, You're aware of this. I am. And then it's just... It's, you know, fill out form after form after form and then they send you a little notice back saying that, you know, you didn't check off this box or you didn't check off that box. I mean, I had a patient complain to me like a couple of weeks ago and because I put down a diagnosis of um, temporal mandibular joint pain, Mm -hmm. the insurance company refused refused to pay it. I'm like, what? What? That was only number two on the list. Why Why did they refuse? Well, I don't know, but they won't pay it. Right. Okay. So they're they're just games. They're games, and that's why the you know the CEOs of these huge insurance companies are making uh, double digits in the millions of dollars as they cut back, and they make all these promises to the patients, and the patients get angry and upset. You know that yeah. they can't get anything covered. So that's only one small aspect. We've also uncovered that the hospital systems are um, huge and huge, and you cannot. Align the hospital with saving money. You can't. Think about it. It's a business, right? Mm-hmm. They get paid by how many beds they've got full and how many people they churn in and out of emergency rooms, how many operations they do, how many people they send to all of their specialists. So it's, it's just, it's counterintuitive. There's no way a big, huge hospital system is going to be more efficient is going to cut costs. They're just not going to do it. And effectively, if you research, you know, the big, huge hospital corporations, conglomerates that are getting bigger and bigger and bigger, you know, they're in the Fortune 500 company uh uh level, Fortune 500 companies. And, you know, their staffing is getting tighter and tighter and tighter. I mean, I've talked to nurses where they're salaries have been cut you know that they're seeing more patients they've got more responsibility and it becomes a real question of of you know patient safety and now mid levels are being hired to do the same work that physicians are are have been doing and there's some
1: questions with that I agree. Not only physicians, not the, the registered nurses as well. When I was trained, and I'm sure you're the same when you were in residency, we learned a ton from the nurses. But these were the people who'd been there for 15, 20 years. I mean, they had seen it all. They were the folks that were training us in addition to our attendings. They're gone. They're doing case management. They're outside of the clinical part of medicine now. So you have the least experienced, the least educated in terms of time on the front line just to save a buck and it's it's it is tragic i would agree with that on that note let's take a break you're listening to medicine on call are you having problems with persistent bad breath constant throat clearing hoarseness a cough that won't go away a sore throat or a feeling that something's always stuck in your throat why not find out what the problem is so it can be fixed at Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking time to work with our patients as a team to get to the root of the problem. Make an appointment today to see why Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. Call 404-591-9100 or visit us at peachtreeentcenter.com. Welcome back to Medicine on Call. Today, I'm my special guest, Dr. Vicki Wool, of Family Practice Medicine. Um, uh, independent family practice medicine physician who's won the Harry F. Harron MD Award for Excellence in Family Practice and is board certified in American Board of Family Medicine. This is a doctor who, like myself, are we're resources. The only thing that I think is a problem right now is that patients don't know, Vicky, that we are out here. They think that the only game in town is is big systems and they're, they're really being pushed that way and I think they're paying more than they should for, uh, I think, a lower standard of care with less time, more prescriptions written and no one's getting healthier. I mean, the mortality rates dropped in our country since we've had this corporatization of the healthcare system. I don't think it's the answer. You know,
0: Elena, that's very interesting that you bring that up because I completely agree. If you look at the curves for life expectancy, um, you know, they shoot up for countries like Germany, Finland, um, you know, uh, other, Spain. And the United States starts dropping off about 1980 and it doesn't climb as fast, kind of plateaus. And you're right, the last three years, our life expectancy has actually decreased. I think there are a lot of number of reasons for that. Um, you know, c- chemical toxins, mm-hmm. uh it, our food is um I've long advocated that our food is physically poisoned. We have things on the shelves that we are marketing to kids that are um uh, You know, they're banned in other countries. They're either banned in China they're banned in Canada they're banned in Europe. And we market them to kids here. Mm -hmm. You know, the level of Roundup that's in a lot of the breakfast cereals and the coloring and the um, food additives and preservatives. So I just, you know, you can't help but think that takes a toll on people's health. I agree. Um, I also found out that recently in the last 40 years that... um, um, Reproductive counts for men have decreased to half than they were their previous level 40 mm-hmm. years ago. So there's clearly something going on and in the sugar, in the amount of sugar that's in all of our food as well. Um, and then the whole emphasis on pills mm-hmm. and treat with a pill and treat with a pill or treat with a solution or treat with something else. And um, I, I don't, it doesn't. Work.
1: No, it doesn't. And there's nobody, it's like the obvious is out there, but the people seem to want to double down on this system that's obviously broken. Its price structure or scale is ridiculous. It's not based on any type of reality whatsoever. The patients are unhappy. They're taking longer to get seen. We're not, the, the, the medical training, uh, the medical education training is just horrendous i just read an article i think it came from the uk but i'm sure it can be extrapolated to everybody that the people the kids who are going in for medical school are having a hard time with surgical with surgery because of the three dimensional aspect of it because they've grown up on computers and everything's virtual but when it comes to using your hands to be able to see things in a three dimensional spatial in in a way to see that from a three dimensional standpoint They have a problem and and dexterity is off. How are we going to replace the surgeons if all they can do is virtual reality? And, uh, you know, I don't know. It's kind of, we're going to, things are coming home to roost, it seems like to me.
0: I would add on that that I've heard that the college admissions have changed some of their parameters so they're not, they're actually looking for more students. On social aspects, oh, right. social determinants, instead of math and science and technology, which I think is terrifying.
1: I don't even know what that means exactly. What? How do you do that? <laughs> I'm not. Do you have any idea how that works? I
0: think the screening questions are more social parameters. Oh, you know, we need so many on the social aspect, mm-hmm. or that I I don't have proof. Of, I mean, I don't have, I have proof. I've had a number of people in education tell me that, mm-hmm. but I don't know the specifics to answer your question.
1: Whatever it is, it doesn't seem like it's based on a standard scale that you can, that you come in with with abilities that are that you can work off of and build on. I mean, my mom was a teacher back in the day in New York and those kids couldn't even write a paragraph. And that. It's unacceptable that you can come out, and in college for that matter as well, there's no spelling going on. I mean, the list is endless of using AI and using the the computers to augment what you, what you actually are putting out. What happens when the computers don't work and you actually have to talk to somebody? <laughs> All the things that we've kind of, I think, blown off as a society – we're really having an issue with. And I think empathy, for me, it seems empathy is one of those, uh, those uh, things that have gone by the wayside. It's all virtual, so you're not looking at anybody. You can say whatever you want. Nobody's feelings. You don't care about anybody's feelings. It's just you and, and what's important to you. That's a bad society.
0: Um, I would agree with maybe that's where we want to. Think all of that is going because mm. that's definitely been the voice. That's definitely been the voice of um, big corporations moving in that and promoting. But the fact the facts are, you know, human be- human beings bleed and they cry and they have emotions and they have a history, and you're not going to change that. Really, um, I, we're. We're all unique and we're special and I think we have a big huge hole in our heart to feel like we're contributing something and we want something better for our kids. And I, I do hear your frustration and whole, the whole negativity. So where the whole talk in terms of medicine has gone to is, well, we just need to give it to the government to take care of us.
1: Exactly.
0: And that is so amazingly frightening That and it's so untrue. I mean, it's it's it, and this kind of goes into my experience with Venezuela um as well as because Venezuela wasn't completely socialist when i moved down there in 1986 you know it was it still had a president and it had things functioning and um you know people were re- were relatively happy and they were able to travel and they were feeding their kids and they were going to school and and life was Life was difficult, but, you know, they have family and relationships and and things were okay. Well, I saw this country completely decomposed, and I went to medical school there. Why? I've asked God that a number of times, and now I think I know because I lived through the complete collapse of this country. I lived and saw what happened on a social and an economic... I live the economic level because I went from upper middle class to poor, as poor could be as I was going through medical school. So, um, you know, the answer is not the government. It really it absolutely isn't. When you have the government come in and take over everything, you lose your freedom. You lose your voice. You lose your rights. And right now, they don't even have food to put on their plate.
1: On that note, let's take a break and digest that. We're listening to Medicine On Call. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare Welcome back to Medicine on Call. This is Dr. Elena George and my special guest, Dr. Vicki Wool. Before the break, I think you just opened up a, a Pandora's box of what really is going on or what we can expect if, if this unfolds. We've been hearing this, the government is the answer. It's all about fairness and everybody's equal. And I don't think it works that way. And you just described having a system or a society that was stable, that had structure, and every, the floor dropped. It wasn't that everybody got better, everybody got poorer. Is that, is that a way to, is that fair to say? Absolutely. How, how did they start the process to go from, what were the things in their society that you could think of that was the beginning of this? I mean, right for us, it's all about rich versus poor, the 1%, you know, the trying to make people envy and hate each other. That seems to me like it's starting off. It used to be, you know, my neighbor has a really nice house or car. I'm going to work harder and get that too. To they took it from me, and I deserve it. How do we? How how did their society start to unfold? Wow, it's a lot of painful memories
0: to go back. To be honest with you, so well, I remember um, I remember being in medical school, and there were these encapuchados, and they were men or kids or teenagers or whatever, and they had had masks on and they would stand at the center of the university. There's one, let me describe Caracas. First of all, Caracas at that time had about six million people in the shape of a bowl. So there were mountains to the north and some to the south and it's kind of a bowl shape where the people that lived on and the sides of the bowl were called the barrios and they were, they were poor, um, but most of them had jobs and, and, you know, some kind of an income. I saw a lot of them when I was in um, a clinical practice in my training. And in the center of um, that bowl was really the city proper, which is Caracas and which is the capital of um Venezuela. And it it you have to kinda of go up about three thousand feet and then down all the way to the coast on the corner of the Caribbean to catch the the airport because it's where you fly into. So um I mean it a beautiful a beautiful uh country, and so I, I lived on one of the major streets, and um, I would walk to the university, and then there would be these riots that would be going on, and then, oh, well, they're just protesting, and oh, they're just protesting, and oh, they're just protesting. Well, the protesting was that of the central university, which was down in the center uh, area of Caracas, was considered um, hands-off to the go- to the police. The police were not allowed to pass over Onto the Central University because it was considered, I don't know, autonomous Mm -hmm. and everything else. So the people that were rioting would stand on the periphery or at the entrance of the university, and they would throw stones or they'd have a gun and they'd be, you know, shouting things and they'd always have their face covered. And I was always trying to understand what are what are they angry about? What are they protesting? And a lot of times nobody really knew. Hmm. They were just there causing all kinds of problems. And so you would kind of go, Oh my gosh, tear gas again. I got to walk through tear gas again. You know, my Hmm. classes are canceled again. And it was, it was kind of a pain because it would disrupt the entire, um, the entire city. Well, those kind of, those things kind of continued. And Chavez, um, actually pulled off a military coup. And um, he bombed the center of the city. I had a girlfriend call me one morning, and she said, you know, Chama, which is kind of like, hey, you, girlfriend, don't go to the university. No te vayas a la universidad. And I said, well, why? And she goes, because we're being attacked. I'm like, what? And so she told me that Chavez was... You know, bombing the city, the airport, the little airport that was there, and she goes, "Look outside." And I looked outside, and there were there were no, nobody was on the street. Mm-hmm. There were no cars. There were no little buses and little buses, which are called caritos, that's pretty much what you grab to go everywhere. <clears throat> well, at the time, I just went, "Oh my gosh, I've got to get to the medical clinic because they're going to need help." So I got dressed. It was, you know, probably seven in the morning, and I got dressed. And I went downstairs, and I actually hitchhiked. Uh, I walked down to the freeway. I hitchhiked, got um, dumped off on uh, a road that was in a really bad part of town Mm -hmm. um, called Avenida San Martin. And I walked and I saw these people looting. I mean, they were crashing down the stores and they were cutting off the chains to these shops and people were walking out with television and clothes and I mean it was just kind of mayhem and I, I was thinking oh my gosh what am I doing here this is like dangerous so I walked up on a back street I caught another ride um, and actually had at that point as I came out as we came out of a tunnel a police escort led me to the clinic and I worked all day long and until I dropped absolutely dropped and we took care of Patient after patient that had been shot and stabbed and, you know, injured. Um, and I'll never forget it. I will never forget the last one of the night came, rolled in around two, two three o'clock in the morning. She was a term pregnancy, nine months and had taken a bullet wound to her, to her back Jeez. and raced her up to the OR. And, um, you know, the surgeon was really nervous and the mom was declared dead. She opened, her up, and the baby was dead. And, you know, I just kind of went, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Well, the aftermath of all of that was that there were reportedly 5,000 people that were just missing. There was a building, and apparently their bodies were in there. That's what I was told, anyway. And the police had come in under like martial law, and there was a group of, there were a group of police that were called the Jota, which were the Policia Tecnico Judicial, so it's technical judicial police Mm -hmm. and they were really super intimidating these guys were huge and they were always dressed in black and you just didn't make eye contact and you just avoided them because you didn't know if they were going to just shoot or you were going to disappear I mean they were just intimidating so anyway it was kind of the beginning of the end and after that we had martial law for a while but everything closed up you know the stores closed up The banks couldn't get money. You couldn't get anything out of the bank. People relied on other other friends and and neighbors for food. Um, They they rationed the water. They rationed the electricity. And that was just a really uncomfortable time. And Chavez established himself as, you know, the ruler of, of Venezuela. And he would occupy the airways. For hours and hours on hours, and just stare straight into the camera and talk. And <laughs> you know, um, it was the beginning. It, it was, it, yeah, it was just the beginning. So up until then, you know, they had a system of hospitals and clinics that were government, all government run, um, and that's where I was doing my uh, my internship, my my training. And uh, we never had supplies. We had to recycle our gloves um, and. You know, it, it was it was touch and go, and and oftentimes you didn't have what you needed to to really, you know, rescue a patient that was in distress, and so mortality was 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 pretty high. Mm-hmm. Now there are no drugs. You can't find antibiotics. You know, pain medications are on the black market. It's it's like if you have breast cancer, you can take a Tylenol if you can find it. Um, it, it's it's really pretty horrendous. And they don't even have, you know, any kind of food. And their average Venezuelan has been losing 10 to 20 pounds, at least the last report that I heard.
1: That is so tragic. So
0: And, and crime. And crime. Crime has just gone crazy. I believe I read that they outlawed, guns in uh about 12 years ago maybe 13 years ago I'd have to check that up for the year mm-hmm. but anyway um it's well known that Caracas is one of the danger most dangerous places on in the world um all the all the you know um, thugs have guns and you're if you have a car which you really can't afford anymore you're middle class there's no way you can afford a car but you know you'll get held up uh, filling up with gas, or at the grocery store, or your car will be ripped off, and and they'll just as soon kill you. So I have a girlfriend who's a pediatrician, and um, she uh, we were talking, and I and I asked her, and I said, well, you've got your clinic, right? And I said, well, has anything happened to you? And and she said, yeah. She goes, I have my my clinic under a lock and key, and I, we unlock to let a patient come in and open and you know, relock it once they come in. But once there was a gunman in the uh, waiting room, I went, oh, my mm. gosh. Well, you know, but I guess they finally went. And I said, well, do you what do you do at the hospital? Do you work at the hospital? And she goes, well, you can't work at the hospital. They'll, they come in and they just shoot you.
1: Oh, my God. And I go,
0: what? Yeah. And, I, and she goes, yeah, my girlfriend was killed doing her rounds on patients because the um, ladrones, the malandros, the, the bad guys, the bad guys would just come in, and you're not taking care of some this this other patient that's been injured because he's on the other side, mm. and we want him dead. So here, you can take it too. So and actually, when she was staying with me, her neighbor was murdered, mm. and I said, I said, you've got to be kidding me. What? Oh don't don't you go to the police? And she said, if you go to the police.
1: Your neck. That's an amazing story. I mean, we're seeing this real time unfold. And why would anybody want to even consider putting the, their, their country in a position to go down this path? And I see two parallels right off the back. Right off the bat, Antifa. With the masked, you know, students running amok on the university campuses—that's one problem right there. You see a parallel right there. Free speech is pretty much non sequitur, and if you believe in God, you're supposed to stay silent because that somehow offends somebody. So it seems to me like we're we have the beginnings or the 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 seeds of the same thing kind of happening. And in your opinion, the single payer movement, this this mantra that it's the it's going to fix everything—do you see how? I mean, you're talking about rationing, not having supplies, not having physicians to help patients. Do you see that happening here? Well, Elena, when I came back to this country in 1996,
0: I, you know, went to residency, but I remember looking around saying, Oh my gosh, the United States has 20 years and that would have been in 2016. So I can tell you this out of this Medicare for all. Mm -hmm. This Medicare for all is Medicare for none. Okay. There's no such thing as socialized medicine that's going to be a panacea and they are going to fix everything and give everybody everything. So what this comes down to is, you know, pretty much everybody can expect at least their income tax to increase by 50 to 55% from what the 30% that it, it normally is or 35%, whatever you normally pay. So 50 to 55%. There's going to be new corporate taxes. So nobody, I mean, that means everybody that has a business is going to have to pay more to the government for taxes, which is going to completely stifle independent businesses, which is what this country is built on. Mm-hmm. You know, the entrepreneurship, it's built on, you know, mom and pop businesses, you know. Um, so that's going to go up. They're going to have to take every um, amount of money that... The federal government uh, allocates now to medicine and put it into one big pot. So what does that mean? That means you take all the Medicaid money and you put it in this pot, and you take all the CHIP money, which is the, for the kids, right, the child um, mm-hmm. health program. Uh, you put all the Medicare money in it. And so seniors, I hope seniors are really listening right now, because you better forget that you're going to have any care in Medicare at all because all that Medicare money is going to go into the big, huge pot to do medicine for the entire country. And there are social parameters that value the life of a senior. And it's not high on the list because they don't feel like there is a lot that they can contribute to society. And that just seems incredulous to me Mm -hmm. and to anybody that has any kind of a brain, but that's the way that it is. Um, um, So anyway, Medicare money, Medicaid, um, the VA money will be in integrated into this, and eventually, probably the Indian Health Service, too. So they're going to take all those money. They're going to tax the kazoo out of everybody. Um, They're going to tax business. They haven't said how much the premiums are going to be. So let me give you a little perspective. We currently spend $3.4 trillion on health care a year. So I tried to describe this to somebody. How much is a trillion? How long do you think, Elena, it'll take you and me to count to a trillion? Just to count.
1: Oh, to count? Oh, my goodness. Uh, five years? 32,000. <laughs> oh, oh, really? Okay. <laughs> I was wrong. <laughs> I <know. laughs>
0: Right? I mean, can you imagine 2.4 trillion and each trillion takes 32,000 years to count to? It's
1: insane.
0: So if we spend 3.4 trillion, they want to do this Medicare for all and add another 32 trillion on top of it. <laughs> 32. That's 10 times more. It's like, we can't pay for this. And you can't, and it's not the crux of where healthcare is. So once you start, oh, what I forgot to tell you was, What Chavez did in Venezuela was he made the poor people happy he was in charge. He made the poor people the ones that were just working by the sweat of their brow and by their back. He made them dependent on the government. Uh, Don't worry about a thing. The government's got your back. Don't worry about it. We'll give you handouts. We'll give you food. We'll give you the job. Mm -hmm. Well, of course, they never materialized. So that's what, in effect, this platform Medicare for all is oh the government will just take care of it. it's a lie. Look at the VA system. You know, in order to get our vet. Help. They had to go outside of the system into the free market to be able to to be able to get medical care. Oh, and the other thing that Medicare for All does, which I think is really telling, is the fact that all private insurance is prohibited. You can't have private insurance. You have to go into the government system. So they capture
1: you. They it's to corral you in that system. Uh huh. Uh
0: huh. Yeah. And they're telling everybody, well, the electronic health medical record is you know really. It, we we need this data. We need all this information. It's a lie. It's they're, they're,
1: you're getting profiled. Yeah, it's about control and data. Uh, and mm-hmm. once they know everything about your health history and your, your medications and your habits, they know you better than you know yourself. You know, And ultimately, doctor-patient relationship gets completely destroyed in this type of system. I foresee if, if this ever, God forbid, ever comes online, they have to have doctors run it or be at least part of it. I believe that they'll tie our licensure to taking this. You won't be able to practice medicine unless you're in this system. Mm-hmm. Oh, Right. And a- so you're basically a slave. So you're making
0: something, a profession, a time-age-honored profession, you're making it into slavery, and you're making, you know, and then, I mean, you know, Elena, how hard it is. You know how you did not thrive when you had to kick out patient after patient after patient after
1: patient. Mm Mm-hmm. It's not what its healing is about. Not at all. But if you look at it from an actuarial, actuarial standpoint, the big farmer will love this. You just sit seven minutes, write a prescription, and you next, you know, you'll have a medication for the side effect of the other medication. It's just supplements. Be damned. They're not going to be allowed in the system because you can't charge for them. I mean, it's just not healthcare. It's a, it's a complex, you know, a, a cartel that's being we're being monetized basically. We're just Designed to write a prescription and make them make someone else money, but not care for people.
0: It's corporate greed from the big industries, from insur- i mean, insurance industries, you know, the hot big hospital system corporations, the pharmacy, pharmacy benefit managers, mm-hmm. purchasing organizations, you know, um, and and a faction a faction of government that just believes that the government needs to provide all of this, and um,
1: it's it's the end of choice. Well, let's take a... The end of freedom. Oh, I absolutely agree. Let's take a small break because I want to ask you when we come back about this this mantra of pre-existing conditions. That's the thing that everybody's being sold on. So let's take a small break and and pick up with that when we come back. You're listening to Medicine On Call. If you've tried taking over-the-counter medications but still have problems with nasal congestion, recurrent sinus infections, sinus headaches, or a dry mouth when you wake up in the morning, why not fix the problem? From natural integrative treatment to minimally invasive surgery, Peachtree ENT Center will work with you to find the solution that works best for you. Call 404-591-9100 today to make an appointment or visit us at peachtreeentcenter.com because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. Welcome back to Medicine on Call. Before the break, Dr. Woll and I were talking about big government and the loss of autonomy and individual patient care and all about control. And one of the things that I've seen really in this election to try to, I guess, move people, move the needle towards single payer is this, you'll lose your medical coverage because they're going to get, if you have a pre-existing condition, you won't be covered. Can you address that? Because that's something that people really don't understand unless they are a physician. I think it's it's being used in a way that's not appropriate. What's your take on that?
0: It's a great question, Alina. Uh, um, and I have given it a little bit of thought. I think one needs to realize that when you have insurance, it's meant to help mitigate loss when something bad happens. And that's not what our health insurance does. Example, you buy car insurance, but you don't drive home going, gee, I didn't get an accident today. Oh, boy, darn, I don't get to use my car <laughs> You know, you're like, wow, I don't have my, I don't need to use it. But medicine's that way. Medicine is like, oh well, I have to have med- I have to have you know insurance to go see a doctor, and that's where the the patient's on the hook. Mm-hmm. The patient's on the hook because they believe the lie that they need the, the insurance in order to go have their wellness care. Well, when when I see a patient in primary care and I do wellness and I do prevention, there's nothing bad that's happening about this relationship. So there's really no justifiable reason that I need to be paid by an insurance. I don't need that into the whole big mix of things. Um, So they've been able to market that. If you were really looking at risk, those patients, you know, like a sudden diagnosis of cancer, a sudden diagnosis of an autoimmune condition, mm-hmm. you know, stuff that you don't wish on anybody, but statistically it does happen. Right. You know, that's when you want the patient to be in a high risk pool that, that, you know, that would cover their costs and expenses. Um, and so it's not, we, because we don't have transparency in the marketplace, right? Mm-hmm. You don't know what that cost is going to charge to take your appendix out or you don't know what the hospital is going to charge, you know, for an episode of congestive heart failure or, you know, there's no transparency or you, you don't know where to go and how to shop. They take from the patient. It doesn't make any sense and that's why people that have been like physicians like myself and you that have gotten frustrated because it's been so difficult to affect change. And so there are bigger powers that are running this show. There are much, much bigger powers that are running it because you know what? Hel- Elena, you know, healthcare is not that tough. If you pay for what you, what you, what you need. And so there are people that get sick. There are people that do have conditions that need ongoing treatment. But And if you think about it, you know, it's not unreasonable for that smoker alcoholic that now has, you know, that's been had a history of drug use that's got Hepatitis C. It's not unreasonable because of that person's own choices mm-hmm. to ask for more money to cover their healthcare costs. It's really not. So, but what's happened is that the, you know young healthy people, young healthy 20 and 30 year olds, are having to cover the cost of other patients. Because of this equalization. So, and that's why, that's where the politics are putting it on. Well, you've got this pre-existing condition. Well, you know, we all do to some degree. Exactly. So I take thyroid medication, mine's a pre-existing condition, and you know what? I buy my own pills, and I buy them for cash. I don't even go through the insurance because they're cheaper that way. So I'm just saying if we had a modicum of transparency and we really could shop around, which I do, um, then you, you can make those decisions. Now, for the real, real sick people, then, you know, you've got insurance. And that is what, I mean, you need something catastrophic Mm -hmm. uh, if you really want to look at it. Although more and more, there's more innovation nowadays, which is really exciting. The whole innovation of the insurance smaller plan or high risk pool plans. Did you know that there are actually physicians that would love to do nothing but work with really complicated institutions? (laughs) Yeah. Do you know? I do. That's what they thrive on. And so why shouldn't they get paid well for taking care of those people, so there are alternatives. It's just that the powers that be want to herd everybody in and have the government take care of us, and then our freedom is seriously gone. If you look at the structure of the United States, one of the hugest, you know, one of the one of the biggest entity that gives more morality mm-hmm. and ethics and a code of ethics with the Hippocratic Oath is medicine, mm-hmm. and they are tearing it
1: down. Well. At this point, do you think, I know that the, the administration has done some good stuff, getting rid of the gag rule for pharmacies so they can tell people that there's a cheaper alternative, the association plan so you can band together as an association across state lines, I believe, and and cover yourself, you know, in terms of accessing the uh, healthcare uh, insurance plans that are cheaper. What else, would, if you could do one thing, what would be the thing that you would do Think of that could fix this system quickly. <laughs> oh <my gosh. laughs> you know, I'm going to ask you a hard question. <laughs> you had a
0: magic wand. <laughs> a magic wand? Oh my goodness. Um, everybody, uh, well, first of all, I would do two things. Number one, have to reestablish that the patient physician relationship is essential. It's got to be based on that. The physicians have to be charged, in charge of the voice of medicine. Why? Because we're the trained the best. We know our job. We know our profession. We know the ins and outs of it. And then number two, there's got to be transparency across the board. You know, patients could really shop for their prices and they could go around and they could go, well, why am I going to go to this hospital when it costs $15,000 when I can get it down at this independent hospital for $5,000? There are so many rules and regulations that are restricting uh, the mobility of, you know, entrepreneurship within medicine is what is stifling it. So there, uh, and I think the current administration gets it. Mm -hmm. I I think they really, I I think they're asking some really valuable questions. And it's given me hope that I have not
1: had in a long time. Well, I think that's a good place to stop because it's all about hope and taking your power back and knowing that there's an alternative and, You're just such a powerful voice, a positive voice. I'm just so happy that I know you because you know you make it worth going out there and saying that I'm a physician because I'm not alone. How can people? um, You write a blog. How can they reach you if they live in Idaho? How can they go to your your medical practice?
0: Oh wow! Um, I have a website. Um, I'm around. I'm in Boise or close to Boise. Um, I don't have a blog. Um,
1: can, I guess I don't understand,
0: you mean contact me personally?
1: Or come as a patient. You know, they need to find doctors like yourself who, who are going to be advocates and not agents of the government. So it's all about being a resource.
0: Eagle Creek Family Medicine in Eagle, Idaho.
1: Great. Vicki, I can't wait to see you again so we can powwow and continue to move everything forward and, and help our patients and help each other. Thank you so much for being a guest today.
0: You know, Elena, thank you for your voice. I really admire
1: what you do. Well, thank you. It's God's grace and, and mercy because it came organically just like everything. I, it was a need. I felt like I had no other choice. And it's become a really just a calling at this point. And I'm so happy that I have folks like you who get it and who are able to express themselves in a way that people can understand and, and not live in fear, but live in hope. That should be the moral of everybody's uh, story, don't you think? I do, Alina. I do it that. On that note, thank you for being my guest and thank you for listening to Medicine on Call.
0: Revolutionary Talk for Revolutionary Times. Promoting peace, liberty,
1: and prosperity around the clock. LibertyTalk.fm